In this episode of The Interface, I speak with Kevin Cornaccio, who heads sales and marketing at PCB Piezotronics, which is a recent Amphenol acquisition. Kevin is based out of Buffalo, New York, and has been with PCB for over 20 years. We talk about the science and technology behind piezoelectricity and the use of crystals and sensors. We talk about the wide range of sensor products they produce and the crazy market application opportunities he's had over the years, including designing an accelerometer to understand and record communications between chameleons. We talk about how growing up in the southern tier of New York and its manufacturing transformation over the years led him to an early career in labor relations. We talk about his career shift to PCB and what it's been like for him post-acquisition. We talk about operas, and we discuss his Desert Island album, book, and comedy classic movie. This is The Interface. Is it cold up in Buffalo today? No, no, it's a balmy 35 degrees. Oh, okay, so it's a it's a heat wave there as everyone gets ready for a big playoff game with the Patriots coming up in a few days, huh? That's right, yeah. Well, we'll be down, we should be below zero tomorrow morning. We'll get ready for game time, so... Kevin, first of all, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate you taking the time um, to be on the podcast. I was lucky enough with a couple other people a month ago to come and visit your facility, uh, PCB Piezotronics, just outside of Buffalo, New York. And uh, as you uh, being uh, one of the higher ups at PCB, I wanted to see if you can give us your description of what your business is all about, since you were the first person I've had from your company on this podcast. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I, I've been with PCB on and off since the early 90s. So I've been able to watch it grow from a small family company up to a you know, kind of mid-market uh, acquisition target, yeah. actually. And now we're part of the Amphenol family. So it's been, a, it's been a company focused on growth and diversification and total customer satisfaction. So we've got about uh, 1,400 people around the world, and uh, we continue to grow. Had a super year last year, and uh, enjoying it. No, that's great. And it was very impressive to be at your multiple facilities, actually, in the area, um, which we'll get to in just a second. But if you could describe what types of products and technologies you produce out of your businesses. So what we do is we produce what we call measurement grade or high fidelity uh, physical sensing instruments. And that's uh, ranging from microphones, accelerometers, pressure sensors, force sensors. Um, We have a small load and torque group, but overwhelmingly they're focused on really measurement and test applications and a very wide range of applications. How hard is it to keep track of all those applications, number one. And number two, how much do the products differ between those applications? Or can you use a lot of the same products and or product technologies within all those wide range of applications from military to, you know, test houses to, um, you know, uh, aerospace to space to, you know, downhole applications so, you know, how, you know, how is it to keep track of all those, number one? And number two, do the products just kind of mesh in regardless with some minor modifications? Yeah, I think the best way to think of it is they all share the same fundamental sensing technology. And depending upon the application, you may have to make it more accurate or more rugged or smaller or lighter. 
uh, depending on the application. And, and to your first question, how to keep track, you, you really can't. I can <laughs> tell you I've been at it for 30 years now, yeah. and I still will hear an application that I hadn't heard of. Yeah. One of my favorites uh, was when somebody was using our accelerometer to record and understand communication amongst chameleons. What they would do is they would send out vibratory signals in the branches of the trees to warn of predators wow. or to uh, try to communicate food sources. I mean, who, who would expect that? Yeah. Right? And then the next minute you're on to uh, producing a product that's going to go on a, on a rolling element bearing in a steel mill. <laughs> yeah. So one day, a natural segue from chameleons to steel mills. Yeah. Well, you, Correct. well, hopefully you at least, you know, developed being a marketing person, you developed a product line called Chameleon then after that, right? I mean, it goes without saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, next time you're up, I'll show you some of the photos. They were really striking. That's unbelievable. Um, yeah, this is, well, the joy of this, this business is I say, you get to see how the world's put together. Yeah. So literally on a, on a two week trip, as I love to take it's been a while now, but you know, I'll be out visiting satellite manufacturers, and then I'll go to a university research lab doing concrete research. Mm -hmm. Then it might be an automotive stamping plant, and then I might be going to consumer electronics testing group. You, know, you just, you see absolutely everything. When you look around you, just about everything you see, almost everything you can touch has a high probability of being tested with our sensors at some point in its development. So say someone new comes to you, right? Say a, a, a college lab, right, that you were, you were just alluding to before. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the application is that they were looking for your help on, mm -hmm. but can you just kind of describe the process from when they come to you and say, hey, here's the issue we would like to measure. How can you help us? And then talk about how that process works for you. Sure. So let's say... Uh, you know, one of the universities that's active in aerospace defense research, they may be looking at how new fibers, uh, materials will respond to the stresses of flight. Mm. So they'll call up one of our engineers or they'll get on our website and they'll search for products that are going to measure uh, behavior in the frequency range or the amplitude range of interest that they think they're going to see. Because mm -hmm. first of all, they don't know, right, 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 until they do the test. Sure. That's part of the interesting part of this game is people think they know what they're testing, but until they actually do it, they don't. So they'll, um, and it depends, you know, if they're very seasoned, they'll probably just ask for a quote for sensors. If they're not, they'll call into one of our application engineers and uh, they'll discuss the application and we'll recommend a sensor and a cable and a signal conditioner and find out what data acquisition they're using and make sure they've got uh, what they need to get a good result. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I can see how the sky's the limit with applications that you have for this this technology and the products that you guys uh, build out of your facilities. So for those that don't know, i.e. me, <laughs> can you describe what piezoelectricity is? Yeah, so uh, piezoelectric, piezo comes from the Greek for squeezing. So right. Uh, at the heart of most of our products is a is a crystal, either made of quartz or ceramic, that when it's squeezed, it will give out a proportional electrical charge. And um, that's where the name of the company came about, Piezotronics. So the trick is to build around that crystal a structure that will measure 
pressure or force or vibration, and interestingly, not measure everything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, because our our crystals will measure temperature, they'll measure acoustics. They won't do it very well. Mm-hmm. But the trick of building a good sensor is to isolate the measure and that you want to see. So you get a crystal, you put a mass on top of it, put a wire into that crystal. Very simply, I mean, any can anybody can make an accelerometer. Again, mm-hmm. not a measuring grade, but you want to make an accelerometer, you have a crystal, you have a hunk of metal, you put a wire in there, and you'll get a proportional output from that mass stressing that crystal as it vibrates. You make it sound so simple. Well, <laughs> it's simple in principle. It's unbelievably complicated to actually pull off. I don't doubt that for a second. Just seeing, look, everyone who's listened to this knows that uh, I am not an engineer and not a very technical person. And walking around your facility, which is different from other Amphenol facilities that I've uh, had the pleasure of visiting over the years, is different, not so much from the fact that you guys are vertically integrated, which we'll come back to in just a second. So you really, you really design and manufacture everything under your, the PCB umbrella. But the crystals part was the part that fascinated me the most, to be quite frank with you, because I, I, I had no idea uh, how this technology actually worked. And when you and Dave were pointing out, you know, hey, this is the crystal, this is really the heart of, of what it is we produce. Oh, and by the way, we make crystals. You know, my mind goes to all this, you know, mystical, you know, people out in Sedona or Santa Fe or something with, you know, selling crystals <laughs> on the roadside, you know, <laughs> and I didn't, I yeah, had no a idea. Bit of alchemy to it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was fascinating, and it was something that I was unfamiliar with. You know, you make it sound so easy, like yeah, you just get a crystal, you you wrap it, you throw a wire in there, and you know, wham bam, thank you, ma'am, you have yourself an accelerometer. But it is complicated. Yeah, and it's and it's everything. Everything is involved. You know, the 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 materials that go in the crystals, how you shape the crystals, how you pull the crystals, how you finish the crystals, how you plate them. That's just that. Mm-hmm. is a very complicated process. Then you have to build the structure around it and you have to have finishes on the structure and it has to be able to withstand shocks and thermal shocks. And, um, but at the end of the day, you know, we don't have a lot of patents, but we have a lot of know-how. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of know-how and how to put this together. You know, the, the founder of the company, Jim Lally, used to say, as I said earlier, anybody can make accelerometers, but it's making ones that actually work. Right. and uh, do what they're supposed to do. That's the trick. But, you know, it's not just the crystals. Yeah. You know, the crystals are the core of the traditional technology, but we, we make a lot of product now with the silicon-type products, MEM products. We make some capacitive products. But really, if you look at our volume, roughly it's probably 60%, maybe 70% crystal-based. I mentioned a little bit earlier about being vertically integrated, and that was the other thing that was really great to see from your facilities and the multiple facilities that we saw in Buffalo is, you know, you're making what I would call a a traditional uh, interconnect type product that has a shell that has contacts and inside is this, this crystal technology, but the contacts you make, the shells you make, and you put all of this together. So you're not utilizing someone else to, you know, like, for example, Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney to make the shells for you or, you know, a contact house, uh, do all these contacts or whatever. You're you're able to do all of it yourself. How much of an advantage is that for you from 
a design standpoint in working with customers? It certainly is an advantage. And we have, we have brought a lot of things in-house. We didn't always make our own connectors. We didn't always make our own crystals. But we had a relentless pursuit of a service level, in other words, lead time, a quality requirement, performance requirement, and a cost target. And where we couldn't meet those, we brought it inside. Now, it's not to say that we make all our own connectors. In fact, we just worked out a great deal with uh, MarTech over in the UK, and they're helping us out with uh, M12 connectors. So we do buy connectors from the outside, but specialized connectors that uh, really provide the performance we need is something that we do. We also uh, make our own what we call ICP amplifiers mm-hmm. to go into the sensors, but we also purchase them as well. Again, it's just it's optimizing our internal supply chain and our external supply chain to get the quality, performance, cost, and lead time that meets the customer requirements. Or total customer satisfaction. Amen. See, I brought it back full circle for you because <laughs> I know it's something that you, you preach to us as well. Sure. So that's a great description of what your business is about. And we'll come back to that towards the end. But now I want to go backwards, right, to a young Kevin Cornaccio growing up in? Well, not far from Sydney. I grew up oh, in that's right. New that's York. Right. Uh, you told me this yeah. at dinner. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about growing up here in the, in the southern tier as opposed to western New York. Uh, I loved it. Loved the green, loved the rolling hills, spent a lot of time in the Finger Lakes, uh, spent a lot of time on the rivers and creeks around the Susquehanna. You know, my father was, uh, as a lot of people were back then on IBM, and then he left and went to university. And through him, I was exposed to a lot of very interesting engineering activities. So uh, I would be on campus with him as a a young kid um, building little breadboards and we built an electric motor together. So being in Vestal and being near the university kind of whet my appetite for things electromechanical and engineering related. I didn't get an engineering degree, mm-hmm. but I was always close uh, to what I was interested in. So yeah, spent, uh, spent time in Vestal and then I went over to Binghamton and did a couple of years there. And then I transferred up to Cornell, did a couple more years there and spent some time in England and ended up being a policy wonk, actually, yes. out of college. So um, I am not an engineer like you are not an engineer, but I am thrilled to be in an engineering-led company, right? <laughs> Where, as I say, you get to see the world put together. And I was working in New York doing policy, right? Yeah. And it was very interesting. I, again, got to see how the world's put together from a different perspective. Yeah. You know, I'd be um, dealing with a lot of leaders and and. Uh, policy issues in, in Washington and New York and at the UN. And, and then I said, I want to really get involved in something that we can see and we can make yeah. right? widgets. Sure. And um, I ended up at PCB. That's the, that's the short version. Yeah, that's a short version, but there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> Not that I'll go nuts. We don't want to you know, get deep into the yeah. psyche and soul of Kevin, but I want to back up all the way, though, to you were talking about earlier, um, the, the IBM influence in the area. And it's mm-hmm. something that has really, as I'm sure you well know, has really died down over a number of years now. In Endicott, New York, uh, it, the IBM facility that was there was massive. And the influence was equally, if not bigger than that. Can you talk a little bit about that during that time, what it was like to grow up in the IBM era uh, in the Binghamton, Vestal, Johnson City days? 
It was interesting because when I was young, I didn't realize that it was something unique. But you had um, in that area, you had both the world leader in what was come, came to be known as uh, welfare capitalism or advanced human resource management. Um, and that was IBM with the advanced human resource management and the Endicott Johnson Shoe Company with welfare capitalism. And it was, they were two companies that really treated their employees really well. Mm-hmm. And you know, had the IBM country club. I remember playing tennis there and swimming there. You know, what company has a country club, yeah. right? And uh, Endicott Johnson that built, it was kind of like a wonderful life, right? They built all these great houses for these workers to purchase at a very reasonable price. And they had a lot of parks and, and, and facilities throughout the area. So it was almost like this ideal, they called it the Valley of Opportunity, right? Yeah. And they were doing amazing things. So you had this really nice social environment and you had good schools and good sports teams and all that. But back behind the curtain, there were incredible things going on. So for instance, my father, I was talking about, he was at Glendale Labs. He was he was modeling how to use holographs for computer memory before holographs were even wow. invented, yeah. right? So they were doing just amazing things. Yeah. And then poof, right? And we started to see it when I was in my later years in high school. Everybody was going to Poughkeepsie or everybody was going to, I think it was Boca Raton, right? Mm-hmm. So that it started to just unwind. Yeah. And it was very, it was so sad to see, right? And a lot of your people, you know, in the Sydney area know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Thank God the university is kind of holding the town together. But it was something to see back in the 70s. It is what it is. But I, I know that at the same time, you know, to, to spin a positive out of it, as you were talking about being a young person, I think that is prob- that place probably developed hundreds, if not thousands, of future engineers or people who got into the engineering field because of what they saw and experienced there uh, as even just growing up in the area um, and you being one of them. You didn't get there first, though. You were in, I think it was labor, right, <laughs> through your your, your yeah. degrees? Lab, lab, trade and labor policy, yeah. Yeah. So, so describe that a little bit for us. I know you talked about being in New York and Washington, but what were some of the types of things that you were doing when, when you were uh, in that profession? First of all, just the reason I was interested in it, my whole family were iron workers, right? Mm-hmm they would just get busted up and they'd be out of work. And I just always, I just didn't understand it. Right. Yeah. So I was always really interested in, in what, what is it, what's going on in the labor movement. Right. And then of course, watching things unwind in the Southern tier, you know, and they got Johnson, you know, went from 20,000 employees to 15 mm-hmm. and that was trade. Yeah. And so I just got these, in, this, this interrelation between trade and labor. And that I studied that throughout college and then um, I got a master's in economics and then I, I did a internship with the U.S. Senate and the Labor and Human Resource Committee and then I did a master's degree at Oxford in management but with a uh, labor relations focus and then I came home in the off cycle because the British universities are on the same cycle as the U.S. and it was a recession is was a recession of uh, 1989-90. And I found myself just writing letters, writing letters, writing letters, mm-hmm. typing letters back in the day, trying to get a job. I couldn't get a job. So I um, was a temp for a while in Manhattan. I'd show up. I'd get seconded down to the financial district or maybe to a law firm in Midtown. 
And um, here I was with two master's degrees, answering phones and typing letters. Nice. Trying to get that, trying to get that first job. Yeah. And I was going through the Cornell alumni newsletter and uh, found the job that was essentially written for me at the time. And it was for the U.S. Council for International Business. And this is something that was formed by IBM and ATT and the big companies right after the Second World War to try to shape the international uh, trade and regulatory system to be friendly to, to business. And they were looking for a manager of international labor affairs. Yeah. Work on trade and labor. Just perfect. Yeah. So that's where I ended up. I worked uh, just on the edge of Rockefeller Center. Uh, I staffed a committee made up of the heads of human resources and labor relations for Fortune 100 firms. Learned a ton. Testified in the Senate and the House of Representatives and represented U.S. business in the U.N. with the OECD. As I say, learned a lot, saw a lot, decided I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, it's funny listening to you. First of all, the stories are fascinating of all the stuff that you've been through. But the way you describe it is so nonchalant, like, ah, I testified in front of Senate and, you know, the House and this and that and the other thing. And, you know, was a temp and just taking calls. Like, it's fascinating. I'm excited. I'm glad I can entertain. <laughs> You're at least entertaining <laughs> me. I think it's great. So, but, so now, of course, the obvious question is, what prompted you to reach out and find PCB outside of Buffalo, New York, after all that? But when I decided I didn't want to be a policy wonk for the rest of my life, the typical path is you uh, go and work for one of the member companies. Mm -hmm. So I had interviewed and I had offers from General Electric and Texaco and PepsiCo to join their labor relations group. And that was in Coral Gables and Dallas and uh, in Massachusetts. And I was saying, you know, I, I just don't think I want to do this. Yeah. And I was at a wedding out in Chicago, and uh, I had gone to school with well, one of the brothers of John Lally, who was the president of the PCB. I was at a wedding um, with some mutual friends, and I ran into John out there, and we started talking. And he was just taking over this PCB business, which didn't really have any international uh, activity, and he was looking for an international guy. And I said, well, I've done a lot of travel don't know anything about your products, but should we give it a shot? Mm -hmm. So I went to Buffalo, saw what they're doing, fell in love uh, with the whole idea of getting it on the ground floor with this widget company and the people I met and actually loved the Buffalo area. I'd never been before. Yeah. I mean, having grown up in the Binghamton area, I'd never been to Buffalo. Right. So I turned down Coral Gables, uh, kind of the Boston area and Dallas to come to Buffalo and never looked back. Yeah, that's great. And that was what, about 30 years ago? Yeah. And when I came to Buffalo, I had, like many people, I had a, a preconceived notion of this uh, city with this kind of green, gray pall of clouds over it <laughs> and Stalinist concrete blocks of apartments. Yeah. But anybody who's been here knows it's as far from the truth as it can be. Yeah, we have some pewter skies in the winter, but the architecture is just stunning. And the the city's really beautiful. And look, no other area has the Bills Mafia. <laughs> that might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I think Love we only Bills want Mafia, one of those. Boy, yeah. 
Yeah, they, they can they can leave a wake of destruction. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of fun to you know see some of these videos. You know, after the, after a Sunday afternoon game, goodness gracious. Yeah, they they uh they enjoyed themselves for sure. Yeah, I love going to the games, but uh, I'm only good for maybe two or three a season. Yeah. So now you are uh, just recently, of course, um, part of Amphenol. How much has that changed for you, if at all, or have things largely stayed the same? Yeah. So, you know, everything that we heard about Amphenol, and I've watched Amphenol for a while uh, from the sidelines, is true, right? It's a decentralized entrepreneurial model with a maniacal desire for information and, and financial management, and it, and it works, right? So it's been great to, to be exposed to the type of people I've been exposed to already, to be able to collaborate across all these different markets and companies. You know, before I came to PCB, I was with a subsidiary of Roper Technologies. I don't know if you know that, but it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit like Amphenol in terms of its model, right? It's, it's very much focused on decentralization, entrepreneurial activity, giving people the power to make the decisions that are right for their business and keeping the company very well informed of, of their financial activities. Yeah. Right. So I was used to that. I, I, re, I was the president of Viatran, which is a smallish uh, pressure sensor company. So we knew what it meant uh, when you gave a forecast and the pressure that it created when that went to the street. So for me, it's kind of back to where I was Yeah. from that perspective. We'll step aside from the work now for a second. And when you're not going to two to three Bills games a year and, uh, you know, maybe out uh, photographing the Stalinistic buildings uh, in and around the Buffalo (laughs) area, (laughs) what do you like to do with your family in your free time? Yeah. So I always say my family's my hobby, right? So I I try to do as much as I can with my family. I have uh, a wife of 30 years and four kids um, who are just now scattering to the winds. We like to do things outside. I like to hunt. I like to fish. We have a cottage on Cuga Lake. We like to go boating and sailing and right. swimming and just being outside in um, in all four seasons is, is something we really enjoy. That's probably uh, about as interesting as it get. You know, I'm a bit of an opera buff, but nobody likes to hear about that. I do enjoy reading, but I don't get a chance to read much anymore. Would you believe I have been to two operas at the Met? In New York. God bless you. Yeah. It was school trips. Yeah. That was one of the advantages didn't of go back, did growing you? up in Long Island. No, we went to see La Boheme and I think it was Tales of Hoffman. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Those are those are those are those are good for the kids. Okay, yeah. That was that was it. That was all I knew. It it was an experience. But when you're in fifth grade and sixth grade, you don't really appreciate it like you would when you're a little bit older. Just a gorgeous place. Yeah, yeah it is. We we try to get down there with the family once a year usually ends up every three years, but <laughs> it's a special place. Now, Kevin, if I take you away from the, the cold upstate New York winters and put you on a desert island by yourself, and you could only bring with you, though, one album, one book, and one movie. We'll start with an album. What album would you bring with you? Could I do a set of albums? Can I do Beethoven symphonies? Yes. Yeah, we'll allow that. Do I have to pick one? Yeah, hold on. Let me check okay. with the judges. I, I've gotten a yeah. thumbs up. You're good. Okay. So that's what I do. Beethoven symphonies. Okay. Uh, a book. Yeah. That's a good one. Probably the Bible. Okay. And the movie, I got to say Caddyshack. <laughs> There's the wild card in the mix, huh? 
Beethoven, the Bible, and Caddyshack. You can't go you wrong. Know, I heard it, recently it never that, gets old. Yeah, but uh, Caddyshack affects different people in different ways, right? My daughter thinks it's the stupidest thing she ever saw, but we enjoy it. Well, you know, on your retirement, maybe you will receive eternal consciousness, so at least you have that going for you. <laughs> Anybody? No? We can all look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, we can all look forward to that. <laughs> so, well, listen, Kevin, I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Uh, it was really great. And your stories, I, I know you were kind of nonchalant and kind of shrugging when you're telling them, but they, to me and I think to the audience, are really fascinating. So I really thank you for sharing today. Yeah, it was great to spend time with you, Chris. Come back and visit soon.